Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now, here's Pastor Jeff. Well, who wants to do a Bible study together? You do, and that's why you've tuned in to the podcast, so welcome in. You know, when I left my secular job and went on staff as a pastor at the church that I was attending, that was back in 1989, my starting salary was about $25,000 a year less than what I had been making. That honestly didn't bother me because I felt both sure and excited about my calling into full-time ministry. But my well-meaning unsaved parents were very concerned about their son's decision, especially my mom. She just couldn't understand why I would leave a job that I had been working at for almost a dozen years and where I had received a couple of promotions to suddenly begin a new career at a church working as a pastor for less money. My parents were truly perplexed, and from a financial and even social perspective, it just didn't make sense to them. At one point, my mother used the word waste to describe my decision. Now, I wasn't offended or even put off by that, and I understood that they simply didn't understand my decision from the spiritual perspective. What was considered to be a waste, I consider to be a blessing. As we come now to Mark chapter 14, a similar dynamic takes place when an act of worship is described as an act of waste. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses of Mark 14, and it presents us with a very stark contrast. In the first two verses and the last two verses of that section, we find evil and betrayal. But sandwiched in between those verses, we have one of the most beautiful acts of worship and adoration recorded anywhere in the pages of Scripture. Like a beautiful diamond laid against the backdrop of black velvet, this act of worship shines forth against the dark background of cold-hearted malice. So let's read our verses together now. We're going to be picking up in verse 1, again of Mark 14. After two days, it was Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take Jesus by trickery and put him to death. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as Jesus sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke that flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good, but me you will not always have. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. 
Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard it, oh, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. I'm titling this message, She Did What She Could. In the previous 13th chapter, Jesus had shared several details about the end times with his disciples. Remember, they were up on the Mount of Olives, and that uh, familiar passage is called the Olivet Discourse. He told them about the coming tribulation, the Antichrist, and the second coming, among other details. Here now in verse 1 of Mark 14, which by the way is the longest chapter in Mark's gospel, we read that it was now two days before Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So this was around Wednesday of Passion Week. For some 1,500 years then, the Jews had observed Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This wasn't the only Jewish feast, but it was certainly the most important. As most of you know, Passover was an annual commemoration and what celebration of how God had delivered Israel from their bondage and slavery in Egypt. Leading up to their deliverance, God had instructed Moses that each of the Jewish families was to take a lamb, kill it, and apply the blood of that lamb to the outside frame of their doorway, top to bottom and side to side. Afterwards, they roasted their lamb and had their final family meal together before leaving Egypt. On the night of that first Passover, all the way back in Egypt, around midnight, God sent the angel of death into the land to kill all of the firstborn, of both people and animals. However, every house that was marked with the blood of the lamb on the outside doorposts was passed over by the angel, and therefore death did not touch those homes. The Hebrew word for Passover, Pesach, means to literally jump over. But every Egyptian home, including Pharaoh's, suffered the deadly judgment of God. As Israel then left Egypt afterwards, they were instructed to make an annual observation and observance of the Passover feast and unleavened bread. Passover was a single night and day, which was then followed by a week-long celebration of unleavened bread. Because their deliverance happened in a single night, the Jewish families moved in haste, and they didn't have time to add yeast to their bread dough and wait for it to rise before baking. Therefore, they ate unleavened bread with their roasted lamb. Well, here now in verse 1, this was two days before that annual Passover celebration which would be on Friday, although it would officially begin at sunset on Thursday evening. Passover always took place on the 14th day of the first month on the Jewish calendar, which on our calendars would be around late March and early April. Sadly, while all the Jewish families were making their preparations here now for the coming Passover, we read in verse 1 that the chief priests and scribes were planning and plotting on how they could apprehend Jesus and put him to death. As they made their plans, they decided it would be best to wait until after the Passover celebration because they were afraid of an uproar by the people. Remember that during Passover, Jerusalem would swell to somewhere between two and three million people, all coming in to observe that very important Jewish feast day. Not only that, but the presence of the Roman military was beefed up and on high alert during that busy time. Those religious leaders then knew if they tried to apprehend Jesus during the Passover, 
the people would riot and revolt because they highly esteemed Jesus as at least a miracle-working prophet. So not only were those religious leaders afraid of a riot by the people, but also the potential backlash from the Roman authorities who would not tolerate any uprising of any kind. And so they decided to wait until after Passover and after the week of unleavened bread. However, that was their wicked timetable, but it wasn't God's holy timetable, and God's timing always wins out. Just as important as the will of God is the timing of God. We remember that previous attempts on the life of Jesus had failed because in the Gospels it was not God's timing. As Jesus said in John 10:18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down myself. The entire Passover celebration observance pointed towards and was the foreshadowing of Jesus Christ as the final Passover lamb. Remember the words of John the Baptist, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So God's timing was for Jesus, the Passover lamb, to die on the day of Passover. Let me also add that uh, this wasn't just some group of unsaved religious leaders here plotting the death of Jesus. Uh, It was, as we read in verse 1, the chief priests and scribes, which referred to the Sanhedrin, the highest level of Jewish religious leaders. Matthew also adds that this plot was headed up by Caiaphas, the high priest at that time. Caiaphas was extremely corrupt, and remember the one responsible for the operation of the money changer tables and the livestock sales in the temple courts. He was profiting greatly from all of that. And so when Jesus overturned the tables and drove out the money changers, he was furious, and along with the other leaders who were profiting from that, wanted to kill Jesus. You'll also notice here in verse 1 that those religious leaders were plotting how they might take Jesus by trickery and put him to death. The Greek word there for trickery means deceit and stealth. The word picture would be along the lines of bait that hides the fish hook or a pile of leaves that hides a trap. They knew that they had no legitimate case against Jesus, but yet they hated him because he had exposed their sin and hypocrisy. Therefore, they wanted to capture him and execute him. But then, against that dark backdrop, of wickedness, we now come to a beautiful diamond of worship and adoration. At this point, Mark records this story of Jesus and the disciples being at the house of a man named Simon, along with the family of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Now, chronologically, this story took place actually a few days earlier, remember on Saturday evening. Then the next day, Sunday, was the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, riding in on the back of a donkey, and all that began Passion Week. So why does Mark place this story out of chronological order by a few days, while Matthew and John keep it in the right order of events in their Gospels? It seems that Mark wanted to emphasize how this story and the devotion of Mary was so closely connected with the death and burial of Jesus And at the same time, it provided a stark night and day contrast to what Judas Iscariot and those religious leaders were doing about the same time. The scene described here takes place in Bethany, a small village east of Jerusalem on the other side of the Mount of Olives. There in Bethany, it was at the house of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus that Jesus and the disciples would frequently come and stay. 
In that same small village, Jesus and the disciples were now invited to dinner at the house of a man named Simon, who is described as a leper. However, Simon was clearly healed of this leprosy, otherwise he would not have been entertaining those guests in his home for dinner. Since leprosy was highly contagious, lepers were required by law to keep a safe distance from other people. And if anyone came too close to them, by law they were required to call out, unclean, unclean, in order to warn that person. There was no known cure for leprosy back then. So putting all this information together, it's pretty clear that Jesus had miraculously healed Simon of his leprosy, and then perhaps out of gratitude, he had invited Jesus and his disciples over for dinner. And the other guests included the three siblings and friends of Jesus, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And being a small village there in Bethany, perhaps they were all neighbors. By the way, do you know who the first leper in the Bible was? The answer might surprise you. It was Moses. When Moses walked up Mount Sinai to meet with the Lord at the burning bush, God appointed Moses to lead the Jewish people out of Egypt and out of their bondage. And as you'll recall, Moses offered up many excuses as to why he felt unqualified for the task. As Moses continued to make excuses, God gave him some signs to demonstrate that he was chosen and sent by God. One of those signs was telling Moses to place his hand uh, inside his bosom, that would be his upper garment, and when Moses pulled his hand out, it was covered with leprosy. Then God told Moses to put his hand back inside his garment, and when he pulled it out again, the leprosy was gone. And so then, while we're on the subject, do you know who the second leper in the Bible was? It was actually the sister of Moses, Miriam. In the wilderness wandering, she and Aaron started murmuring against Moses unjustly, and since she was the instigator of that complaining, God struck her with leprosy. But her brother Moses pleaded to God to heal her, and after seven days, the Lord took away that leprosy. Now, there are no instances in Bible history where leprosy was ever healed apart from a divine touch from God. In the Old Testament, only God healed leprosy, whether directly or through a prophet like Elisha when he healed the leprosy of a Syrian army commander named Naaman. And in the New Testament, only Jesus healed people with leprosy. Therefore, it's pretty clear that this man, Simon, had been healed by Jesus. Here at this dinner, we read that a woman approached Jesus as he was at the dinner table. Now, the same story is recorded in Matthew 26 and in John 12. And only John identifies her as being Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. So why didn't Matthew and Mark here identify her by name? Well, we're not told specifically, but it can be pointed out that Matthew and Mark were the two earliest gospels to be written. That would be about 20, 25 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Mary was probably still alive at that time, and the persecution against Christian believers was intense and quite heavy. Therefore, those first two gospel writers may have withheld her name in order to protect her. But then comes John, who writes his gospel at the end of the first century, some 60 plus years after Jesus had died and rose again. By that time, Mary was probably in heaven, and so it was safe to identify her. Now, let me also say that there's another super important reason why Mary needed to be identified by someone 
And we'll talk about that in a few moments. As Mary approached Jesus at the dinner table, she came with an alabaster flask of very expensive oil or perfume. And without hesitation, she broke off the top of the flask and poured the fragrant oil over the head of Jesus. In John's gospel, we read that oil was on the feet of Jesus and that Mary used her own hair to wipe and anoint the feet of Jesus. But that's not a contradiction, as some have suggested. Either the oil dripped off the head of Jesus and onto his feet, or else Mary simply applied some of the oil from his head onto his feet. The contents of this flask are described as very costly oil of spikenard. But first of all, the flask itself would have been made of expensive Egyptian marble, so it was valuable in its own right. It would have held about 12 ounces, and so Mary breaking that flask highlights the sacrificial act of what she was doing. Spikenard then describes very valuable oil that's extracted from a special plant over in India. The value of that oil was increased because it had to be exported all the way from India to Israel. The word spikenard is literally two words. It's translated pure nard. Therefore, this oil or perfume was undiluted, making it all the more valuable. So, what was the value of that oil? Well, we read here that some in that house during that dinner were indignant about what Mary had done, and they complained, saying, why was this fragrant oil wasted? Once again, it's John in his gospel who tells us that while the other disciples agreed, it was actually Judas Iscariot who spoke up and said this. And it was Judas who then went on to say, this oil could have been sold for 300 denarii and the money then given to the poor. But as John's gospel points out, Judas didn't say that because he actually cared about poor people, but because he was in charge of the disciples' money box He was a thief, and he was stealing from it on a regular basis. So the actual outrage of Judas was not that the oil was being wasted, but that it was not being sold, and the money then placed in the disciples' money box so that he could skim off the top. Now, we'll talk more about Judas in our upcoming studies, but let me just point out that some writers have tried to paint Judas as some sort of unwitting victim in his soon-coming betrayal of Jesus. Some have suggested that Judas simply became disillusioned when Jesus didn't establish the kingdom right then and there. But the Bible clearly says otherwise. First of all, though he was following Jesus, he was never converted in his heart. Secondly, he was a thief, stealing money on a regular basis. In fact, he agreed with the wicked religious leaders, the unsaved religious leaders, to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So Judas was just flat out greedy for money. And it's significant that Judas was made treasurer of the group because it means that all the other disciples trusted him. They didn't suspect that he was a thief or would steal their money. Judas had everyone fooled except for Jesus. And you might guess what I'm going to say next. You can fool some of the people all of the time. You can fool all of the people some of the time but you can never fool Jesus any of the time. Thirdly then, Jesus himself said of Judas that he was a devil and that it would be better off for him if he had never been born. So clearly, Judas was no hapless victim. He was an unsaved thief, betrayer, 
who had seen the miracles of Jesus and heard the gospel messages, but never believed in Jesus by faith for salvation. And notice with me here how quickly Judas was able to calculate the value of that oil and then declare that it could have been sold for 300 denarii. How did Judas calculate that so quickly? There wasn't like a price sticker on the flask. One denarii, by the way, was the average daily wage for workers, and so 300 denarii represented about a year's salary. The Jewish work week was six days, which comes out to around 312 days, and then we can subtract some annual feast days like Passover, and it comes out to around 300 work days and to an annual salary of about 300 denarii. Amazingly, Judas calculated that right on the spot. But you know, like Judas, some people know the price of everything and the value of nothing. He couldn't see the value of Mary's act of worship and devotion, and he couldn't see the value of Jesus' ministry. But we can see the value of what Mary did here in anointing Jesus. That alabaster flask of costly oil, which may have been her personal dowry for marriage, or maybe it was a family heirloom, it was worth a year's salary. Can you imagine some harebrained husband going out and buying his wife perfume for her birthday that costs an entire year's salary? Those types of decisions typically lead to manslaughter. Any sensible wife would consider that a terrible waste of money, and they would be right. Ironically, Judas described what Mary did as being a waste. Hmm. Do you know what Jesus called Judas in John 17 too? the son of perdition. And do you know what perdition means? It means waste. Judas called Mary's sacrificial act of worship a waste, and a few days later, Jesus described Judas as the son of waste. And do you see what Jesus said here about Mary's act of devotion? He made a stunning statement. She has done what she could. She has come ahead of time to anoint my body for burial And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Wow, what a remarkable statement. First of all, she did what she could. There was probably not a lot of things that she could have done for Jesus, but she did what she could. And there may not be a lot of things that you and I can do for Jesus, but shouldn't we do what we can? You know, like sharing the gospel and helping others. Secondly, Mary was anointing Christ's body for his soon coming burial. Now, she may not have understood every detail or every item that was going on, but she seemed to understand more than the disciples did. On one occasion, I think it was back in Mark 9, when Jesus spoke of his impending death, the disciples responded by arguing over which one of them was the greatest. But at least Mary had some sense of what was coming. She believed it, and she responded lovingly and sacrificially. Now, here's something else I find very interesting. When her brother Lazarus died shortly before this, we don't read that Mary offered that same oil to anoint her brother's body for burial. It's not that Mary didn't love Lazarus. The entire death and burial passage recorded in John 11 makes it very clear that she absolutely adored and loved her brother. But apparently, Mary had already made the decision that her valuable oil was being kept for 
Jesus to anoint him for his burial. In fact, in the very next chapter of John, John 12, as Mary is anointing Jesus in the parallel story here, he says of her, she has kept this for the day of my burial, implying that she had been planning on doing this for some time. Interesting. Well, thirdly, Jesus says that along with the gospel going out throughout the whole world, that what Mary did would also be remembered right alongside of it. And you know what? Here we are now in this podcast, 2,000 years later, and we're still talking about what Mary did that night for Jesus. So earlier, remember how I said that it was very important for John that he identify Mary in his gospel? Matthew and Mark didn't identify her, so if John hadn't told us that this was Mary of Bethany, we wouldn't be able to memorialize her as Jesus said we should. So it's no coincidence or even small fact that John identified Mary for us in his gospel. In fact, what do we remember here now 2,000 years later? We remember the sacrificial act of Mary, and we remember the wasted life of Judas. And so then, verses 10 and 11 takes us back to the dark side, where we read that after this dinner gathering, Judas went to the chief priest, that is the Sanhedrin, and he cut a deal with them to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Interesting, isn't it, how this story we just read was apparently the final catalyst that drove Judas to make this ultimate decision to betray Jesus. The catalyst was the sacrificial act of Mary, and I think the rebuke of Jesus as well when Judas hypocritically tried to call her out for wasting resources. That rebuke from Jesus should have pushed Jesus, uh, Judas towards repentance and saving faith, but instead it pushed his darkened heart even further the other way. It's very sobering to think that Mary's sacrifice was worth 300 denarii, while the betrayal of Judas against the sinless Son of God was only worth 30 pieces of silver. That's the trouble with many unsafe people. They value all the wrong things. Before we close, let me say something more about Mary. Whenever we read about her in the Gospels, she's at the feet of Jesus. In Luke 10, when her sister Martha was busy preparing an elaborate meal in their Bethany kitchen, Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him speak. When Martha got upset about it and even chided Jesus about her sister not helping out, Jesus defended Mary once again and told Martha that she had chosen the better part. Now, what Martha was doing was not bad. In fact, it was good. But what Mary was doing was even better. And she was sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his words. An act of devotion is always better than an act of duty. Then in John 11, after her brother Lazarus died and was buried there in that Bethany cemetery, both Martha and Mary were there grieving. And when Jesus arrived, we read that Mary fell at his feet once again. She poured out her heart of grief to him. In what was perhaps the worst moment of her life up to that point, Mary fell down at the feet of Jesus. And then here in our present story, we find Mary once again at the feet of Jesus, anointing them with oil and with love. In closing then, let me ask you this. In 2,000 years from now, will your legacy be your love and devotion for Jesus, or will it be your love and devotion for the world? The answer to that question will reveal where you'll spend eternity, in heaven with Jesus or in hell separated from God. 
Mary's legacy and the legacy of all faithful believers is faith and worship. The legacy of Judas and the legacy of all unsaved people is unbelief and waste, a wasted life and a wasted soul. I hope and pray that you'll be counted among the worshipers, those who recognize their sin and their need for a Savior, those who trusted Jesus Christ alone for salvation and for eternal life with Him in heaven. And remember, as the Bible tells us, tomorrow is promised to no one. You have no guarantees that you'll still be alive tomorrow. So please make your decision today. Call out to Jesus right now while you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.